0: Hey, friends, I'm Allie O'Grady, and welcome to Thoughtful Human, the podcast. In today's episode, we'll be kicking off a series of conversations with one of my very favorite nonprofit organizations, Success Stories. So, why Success Stories? Back in 2018, a friend of mine brought me to a screening over in Oakland of a documentary called The Feminist on Cell Block Y. At the time, I didn't quite know what I was stepping into, but it truly stopped me in my tracks and has forever shaped the way that I think about subjects like toxic masculinity, patriarchy, incarceration, and really social justice at large. The documentary, of course, features the work of Success Stories, an organization where men lead transformational feminist workshops with people who have caused harm. If you watch the film, you'll see how critically important this work is in a prison setting, but make no mistake, the themes they discuss and the solutions they offer are extremely relevant and valuable to men and women everywhere. As I've continued to build Thoughtful Human and explore communication challenges around subjects like addiction, mental health, women's issues, and beyond, it is so clear that the work Success Stories is doing is absolutely fundamental if we want to reduce harm and work towards prevention in any of these areas. Their work has inspired so many important conversations with men in my life, and I can't wait for you to learn more about them, the men behind the organization, and to start exploring these conversations in your own relationships. Now, just in case you're not sold that this work and conversation is relevant to your life, or maybe you're just not sold on why it's necessary to focus on men when we talk about issues like addiction, depression, domestic violence, et cetera. Well, here are some of the alarming statistics shared in The Feminist on Cell Block Y. Men are twice as likely as women to abuse or become dependent on drugs and alcohol. Men are nearly four times as likely as women to die by suicide. In cases where the perpetrator is known, 90% of homicides are committed by men. 98% of mass shootings are committed by men. And men account for 80% of arrests for all violent crime. So, how do men get to these isolated places in desperate moments, and how do we help change that? This conversation with Chris Johnson is going to shed a lot of light on that. We discuss his pursuit of manhood, what it cost him, how he found his way to healing and integrity in the face of a 65-year prison sentence, and how he's helping other men transform harmful ideas and behaviors as a transformational coach and growth coordinator on the Success Stories team. For the purposes of this conversation, we'll be using men, male, and masculine to refer to any person identifying as a man, and women, female, and feminine to refer to any person identifying as a woman. Please enjoy Chris Johnson. Hi, Chris, thank you so much for being here today and joining me on the Thoughtful Human Podcast.
1: Uh, Thank you so much for having me. This is a great opportunity for me. thank you so much.
0: Yeah, I can't tell you how excited I am. Um, Anyone who has talked to me in recent years knows that uh, toxic masculinity is simply a subject I won't shut up about. (laughs) So I am really excited um, to to actually (laughs) shut up about it and hear from you and uh, learn and share with our community more about success stories and the work that you do. But before we get into that i want to back up and just learn a little bit more about you so i would love if you could just start us off at the beginning and tell us a little bit about your personal story
1: the beginning of my existence here
0: beginning of time here? wherever you'd like okay. to begin
1: um i'll tell the story in so many different ways depending on the audience i guess um I guess I would say that I was born, uh, I was raised as the only child of a single mother who wanted to do everything for her son to put him in, um, to give him the best opportunities. However, she had a lot of struggles herself. She was going to work all day and things like that. So she tried to get me in the best type of public schools. However, um, you know, some of the public schools, they were, you know, peopled by affluent people. You know, she really tried to find public schools in a really good area. And so uh, we were not affluent at all. And so... um, I do appreciate my mom now seeing the foresight of trying to get me these, uh, these educational opportunities, but there's some really serious obstacles I had to deal with. Um, so basically it was just, it was just being her. My mom uh, raised me um, by herself. My grandmother chipped in a little bit. My father had been gone. He left when I was six, but I really don't have any memories of him. But uh, my mom instilled a pretty good um, expectation in me. Um, she instilled a lot of value. Um, she thought I was gold just from, my existence, she just thought I was the world to her. Till this day, she still thinks that. But um, my mom had a lot of stress. And so um, I wasn't always ready to communicate certain things to her, so there's a lot of things I kept to myself because I didn't really see my mom as a, self, a safe person to really talk to even though I knew she loved me. Um, I didn't see her as somebody that could help me deal with the navigating the issues that I had. And so um, that's really what led to me adopting certain ideas as guidance, <laughs> because I lacked any father figure Whatsoever. Like, not only did my father leave me, my grandfather passed away when I was five. I had like no coaches or anybody that was really taking any uncles or older cousins that took a particular interest in me. So it was really just me navigating it by myself. Um, and um, I pretty much bought into all the ideas of toxic masculinity, every single idea that uh, represented what a young black male should be. And by the time I was about 13, I was already pretty much adopting all the principles of toxic masculinity as we define it in our program. Um, Can- Basically, I, yeah.
0: Can you pause and tell me what some of those ideas were?
1: Yeah. Um, Specifically, now I couldn't articulate this when I was young, but I remember adamantly, I knew that I needed to tap into the ability to be, to have force. So like knowing how to fight, being strong, projecting strength, being able to dominate another person. Now I played sports and I was good at it. So that came as a quality nobody taught me how to throw a punch and I really was insecure about that. Even as a young child, I was really, really super insecure about that. And I remember my first fight that i had got into as an altercation. I was nine years old and I got beat up pretty bad. And when I came and told my mom, because it was at a party, what was going through my head was that I don't know what I'm doing. And I lost and I was embarrassed and I was insecure of this path that I needed to be on because I felt that a a man should know how to throw a punch. He should be able to beat people up. And um, my mom wasn't familiar with that space, familiar with that, that invitation into manhood. And so she was, she was really pissed off at me for cussing. She found out that Mm -hmm. I was cussing in the fight. Mm -hmm. And so I was grounded and I got in trouble and things like that. And like, that was kind of like, when me and her talking, that was a pivotal moment of me saying, you know, uh, my mom is not safe to talk to about these particular issues. So music, culture, uh, the guys around me, we were all trying to figure out ways in manhood and basically those only avenues that were being presented towards manhood in this culture were um, basically being able to be willingness to be violent. So you had to act up or project this idea that I'm willing to be violent. I'm willing to get in a fight. I'm not scared to be physical um, in a dominant forceful way. Uh, that was one avenue. The other avenue was uh, in, in our group. We we speak of it as the objectification of women, but that encompasses so much. So growing up, women, Girls were seen as uh, something to conquer, or manipulate, or to um, to win over, to get as much sexually or mentally out of them as possible, and that was like some type of competition thing. You know, if girls weren't desiring you or wanting you, you know, you're in a bad place. If you weren't able to, um, if your girl cheated on you, if you had a girlfriend and she cheated on you, that meant something terrible. You know, if you weren't, if you had a girlfriend, but you're only holding hands, you weren't making any type of sexual progression. Like that's how it was stated. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about development. It, that's this was an, another avenue of manhood. If you couldn't get a girl, if you you know things like that. Um, the other avenue was the appearance of wealth. Usually we say like having money, but it really wasn't about having money. It was about people thinking you had money. Mm-hmm. And so like these these were the big deals. And um, the the other lane was not only do you not show particular emotions like sadness or uh, fear, you you also had to project an individuality, a ruggedness, a willingness to, I could take care of it on my own. So these are the four avenues that were presented to me. And I want to take you, I want to take you back a little bit with me. So when my father, when he left and there was no other real model in there, um, I felt like I was kind of it was rejection. It was rejection from my father chronically because we knew where he was at. He just didn't want anything to do with me. His brothers, my uncles rejected me. And so in my mind, like I made up a story about myself in response to that which was that I was disposable. Um, the me, the authentic natural me was not enough to keep people in my life. And this, is a, this is a story I created. This is my response, my choice to believe mm-hmm. this in response to this, these things around me. So at an early age, I, I started performing for people. I knew that I needed more than what I already was in order to keep people in my life. So when I was young, I was like a funny kid. I was very um, um, keyed in on people's facial expressions and behaviors to know if I was offending them. So I made, myself, I made myself very, very safe for people to be around. I wouldn't offend you, I would entertain you. I was this funny kid and I was like good as boys. And so I had a lot of friends, I always did. When I turned 12 though, and this is where the invitation comes in. At 12, the audience shifted. The audience no longer really wanted somebody that was funny that was cool and all but now there's this also this demand of masculinity you know and it wasn't spoken of that way it wasn't said that "Hey, you got to be a man it was spoken of like you got to be tough you got to be with me. you know what i'm saying are you broke you, or you got dirty shoes and the same pair of pants you wore yesterday these types of things are what's echoing like where's your girlfriend you ain't got no girls you know um go get at her i bet you couldn't get her like these are the this is the environment with which Um, I staked all my value on this particular audience's confirmation of my value. So I didn't have a strong self-worth at all. And so this is the the mindset I I entered into this arena with. And so I looked to Denzel Washington. I looked to Tupac. I looked to anybody that resembled me to lay out what I'm supposed to do to perform to please this audience so that I could feel valuable. And that was the pathway that I was on. You know, I could articulate it now because I've done a lot of the inner work, but... When I was young, it was just an emotional response. It felt like this is just the way things are. Other people are yeah. better at it than I am, and I need to maintain it. It's a lot of mental energy coming out. I also had a fixed mindset. My mom and my grandmother, I was the firstborn grandson, great-grandson, firstborn son to my mother. So I was gold just for existing. So I, had a, I was very repelled by effort. Effort mm-hmm. seemed risky for me. I believed that if I was smart, then things should be easy for me. And if it wasn't easy, it was gonna reveal that I'm not smart. And so I basically, by me doing nothing, I feel valuable. You know, so I didn't understand that even you, you, your brain is plastic. Like you apply effort, you get better and you grow in skill. I thought that, you know, if you show up in the algebra class, if you're smart, you get it automatically and you just keep moving through the steps. So anytime something right. became a challenge, I would quit because it would, I feel like it would expose my lack of value, you know, Um, and I'd make excuses about that. So these are like the patterns that rolled throughout my life that I had to transform. I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot, but um, you asked me what my story was, and it's like, (laughs) you know, Um, you know, teenage years, yeah, uh oh, teenage years, um, you know, playing football, playing sports, performing as well, you know, I'm in, I'm living in the suburbs of LA, but I'm acting like You know, um, for the toughness aspect, people are assuming because I go to a predominantly white school, people are assuming because I'm black, I have gangster cousins or somebody in L.A., South Central and all that that um, that I that I know. And I saw the opportunity to seem valuable in that. And so I pretended like I did have those people. I had none of that. I didn't know anything about that. People thought that I knew how to crip walk and uh, knew all kinds of things about guns and, and could play sports well and all these things. And I would try to, like, live up to that or. If it seemed like something that I couldn't do, I would just you know, pretend like it was beneath me. Um, I did school a lot. Um, school seemed, I was the only child, so school was a place for social things. It was a place to be with my friends and to be social, but it was not a place to learn. Um, and then, like I said, being in a classroom, if it wasn't coming easy, then chances are I was gonna bail out anyway. Um, the end of high school came suddenly. I couldn't graduate on time, which is another piece of shame for me. So I, I, I hid that. I did um, go to adult school. Um, so I graduated like six months late, um, but it was embarrassing. It was really, really embarrassing for me and my, for like my family. I just kind of like, we never even really talked about it. You know, my mom knew, but like my grandmother, we never really mentioned it. Um, 18, all my friends went to the military, uh, my close friends. I was intimidated by the military, even though it runs in my family. And once again, I didn't say, Hey you guys, I'm kind of like afraid. I'm not going to measure up. I didn't say that. I said, oh man, I ain't tripping off the military. I'm going to get a job. I'll be rich by the time you guys get back. And in that Mm -hmm. phrase is so much because I wasn't Mm -hmm. saying I'm going to have money to take care of the things that I need. I was really saying that I'm going to be super valuable by the time you guys get back in spite of the fact that I'm afraid to go to the military. Um, In fact, I was in prison by the time those guys got back. I had decent jobs. um, Had a lot of charm. A lot of good first impression. You know, um, In a lot of spaces, I knew that I was like the exact black guy that they were looking for and I took advantage of that um i worked for verizon i was trained in a month in their campus to be a salesperson and all this um i worked for sprint uh, same thing um i even became a personal banker i was doing equity lines and loans at wells fargo in fact that's um in that position at wells fargo was when uh the pressure to be rich for me really hit home because i'm entering into adulthood i'm 21 at the time and um you know i I'm, i met a woman who in the bank, she sees me in my suit and tie. She thinks that I have money. I know she thinks I have money and I'm projecting it. She, Mm -hmm. as we get to talking, she lets me know that she has uh, NBA players and basically like movie stars that constantly approach her and want to get at her and she turns them down and here she is giving me attention. So I go right into performance mode and I am, you know, I'm that perfect combination of of thug and professional. I'll get it done. I'll I'll be a millionaire in six months. I was not going to be a millionaire in six months working at that bank. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. Now, mind you, I already bought into everything, the whole culture of what it meant to be a young black male at that time. And so this is get rich or die trying time. This is not, my values are, are placed in a lot of these toxic principles, you know, mm-hmm. willingness to be violent. Once again, you know, women are an accessory um, to and me showing my power over them, my, my ability to manipulate them, to please them sexually or to, to control their mind and make them do crazy things for me. Like that was where my masculinity dwelled at. And I didn't term it as masculinity. I just termed it as value. Like this is how you become valuable to somebody when you're a man, especially a black man, you better do it good. And so, um, and then of course, you know, projection, projections of money. So long story short, I quit the job, start, started, started to try to start a business that I had no idea how to run. The business started going to hell. I didn't tell her that. I didn't tell her that I didn't have that, I didn't have really any money saved. And so I was losing everything. And so as things got, um, as the pressure built, I started to try to find avenues with which to salvage this new audience because she became my new audience. You know, I'm pleasing her and I'm becoming, my value is now coming from her claps pretty much. And so um I made it a very sexy thing for me to be super strong and going here. And mind you, the business is, is I'm blaming the failures on the world. It's not my management, it's the world is stupid and not taking care of this product. But I found a way out. Well, I thought I did. Um growing up, I knew who drug dealers in the neighborhood were. I knew guys that had, you know, were getting money doing those illegal things because I was I was trying to have that type of that type of image, you know, even though I wasn't really doing too much illegal. But uh as that pressure built, criminal avenues of escape started to look really, really attractive. And I started to think, well, if I just rob or beat up one of these drug dealers, I'll get enough money to salvage the business. Um, that story and how I presented it to my girlfriend, really, she really, really liked it. Um, I liked the fact that she liked it. It was like this sexy thing. And so, uh, you know, that was the beginning of of my journey into the, the, the criminal mind, the criminal aspect of me. And the first, now mind you, we're doing bunny and Clyde type robberies. So um, imagine I'm performing for this woman. I've never done a robbery before in my life. I have shotguns since I was like 12 years old. We go to the shooting range and meet my mom. But I have no idea what I'm doing. I just know what it, what it looks like on the movies. And so um, getting out of the car, because I'm protecting her, she has to be parked right up the street. You know, you have my back, you're the getaway driver. Getting out of the car, acting like I'm tough, and then walking down the street, per se, and I'm in my head with like all these... I don't know what the hell I'm doing. What am I going to do? But I got to show up. I got to fix it. I got to make it happen. And I thought it was a very courageous thing to pump myself up to do this type of act. Um, And what's sad is basically my choice was to seem like I was valuable to this other group of people or respect the humanity of a human being. And I made that wrong choice to choose that personal value over and over and over again. And each time it became easier and easier and easier. Um, but it eroded my conscience and my soul. Like I stayed away from my family. I stayed away from her family. I was like, I became a really dark person. Um, I did it time and time again because it didn't go
2: like it did in my mind.
1: I didn't get a quarter million dollars from a guy and, you know, it didn't work out like that. Um, and so I pretty much sold my soul over the period of about, uh, 10 months. I got arrested in McDonald's drive through, um. They arrested my girlfriend about three months later. Um, I was charged with 45 counts of armed robbery. I was faced with over 500 years in prison. I've never been to juvenile hall. I've had cuffs placed on me because I've been harassed by the police in my neighborhood since I was like 14 years old, 12 really. Uh, but this was like for real. Um, I couldn't wrap my head around it because I was like, I always, this can't happen to me. Like something's, something's gonna, I'll be able to fix this soon. I'll be able to fix this soon. And I wasn't, you know, um, long story short, after three years in the county jail, I was, my girlfriend took a deal, which I'm glad she did because I didn't want anybody else to suffer from my choices. Um, she took a deal. She did end up doing like two years in the county jail. Um, she went home. I never talked to her again um, to this day, but uh, which is fine. But the I ended up going to trial. We went to trial two times. I went to trial again, got convicted of eight counts, ultimately, and sentenced to 65 years and five months in prison which I felt like was the rest of my life. Um, I was trying to, I mean, I'm in a bad situation. I don't think my lawyers are going to be able to get me out. I'm still hoping, but I'm trying to hedge my bets. So of course I pick up the Bible, you know, and um, I'm pretty much trying to manipulate God out of America. I'm like, okay, let me run through these pages and figure out what you want me to do in order for you to open these doors for me. And I did that, um, studied the crap out of it and, uh, learned a lot and I don't regret it, but, um, Long story short, like it got revealed to me that I didn't have the faith that I thought I did. Um, that I was really just trying to manipulate God to get a miracle. Mm. So that was another level of denial. However, I was reading now. I was reading a lot. That was the beginning of me starting to like really, really read. The first book I started to read was the Bible because I wanted a miracle. But now I'm like reading other books. And um,
0: and how, how old are I'm, you at this time? Yeah,
1: I'm 20, 22.
0: Okay. I, got,
1: uh, I got arrested at 22. I got sent to prison at 25. I spent three years in a county jail fighting my case. So, um, you know, my grandma sending me books I'm reading. And as you start to, you can't consider what you don't consume is a phrase I like to use. And So mm. by me consuming new things, I had to accommodate these new ideas in my mind. And really, I went through a process of like, I'm writing it out, but it's really like ego reconstruction. Like I had self-preservation of my ego when I was doing these dumb things. I had an idea of what who I needed to be in this world. And it was, I defended that. Um, When I got arrested, um, that was a moment of some significant dissonance because me robbing people was not something that I projected as like a strong thing. The only audience that I was doing that for was my girlfriend. The rest of people thought I was running a business legitimately. That was the show I was putting on for them. So to be exposed in this way was very, very shameful for me. On top of that, I was objectifying these people like in order to hurt somebody in that type of way, like, even though I didn't hurt them physically, but to threaten them with firearm and things like that to get money out of them is, is significant. And uh, in order to do that, I had to objectify them and make it like a harmless thing in my mind. Well, I was no longer able to uphold that level of um, fantasy when the D.A. is is articulating the crime that uh, victims are getting on the stand and telling you how they felt when the thing happened. It, 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 it basically, long story short, that self-preservation I had for that ego, that moment of dissonance led to like significant shame and guilt. Mm -hmm. The shame and guilt was severely narcissistic. Um, I had suicidal ideations after I got sentenced. I felt like God abandoned me because I didn't understand that I was manipulating God. I didn't get that yet. I wasn't mature enough yet. So I just felt like, dude, this is unfair. unfair. It's unfair. It's unfair. It's unfair. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But please don't let these consequences come down on me. And I sat in that moment and it led to suicidal ideation because I didn't I didn't push past shame and guilt into responsibility. I still felt like I had to do these things or something. I was like still so selfish that I wanted to focus on my pain and how much I'm hurting and save me. I get it, I did wrong, but like let the pain in. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until I started taking other classes, I ran into men that were more challenging in their conversation. Uh, introduced to philosophy like um, existentialism um, and just new definitions. That's where it started to open up like, you know what? I did these things and I created all this myself. Um, Like my complaints are really self-centered. So now it's like, okay, well, here's the consequences. I have hopes. I do want to hope to get out of here, but who am I going to be? Like, why did I really do all this crap? And that was the beginning of me trying to figure out like, okay, why did I do this? And I started to like go to try to go to group therapy, read different books, have more difficult conversations. This is what led into Success Stories.
0: Yeah, so at, at what point in this journey did you run into Success Stories?
1: Yes, seriously. Uh 10 years into my incarceration.
0: 10 years um,
1: in. I feel like I was, yeah, I spent 15 years in prison. So I ran into Success Stories in 2015, okay. um, which is a big deal. Now, mind you, I want you to see young man came into jail. I've always spoke this way. I've always had a certain type of presence. So I got a lot of privileges and a lot of uh, projected um, opinions by people. They thought I was smart. They thought Mm -hmm. all these things about me. And I use that to navigate prison. I'm not from a gang or anything like that. I'm not from no major city. However, um, I had a lot of time and people could not, they could not fix the person they were seeing in front of them with all these, all these crimes. And so they always looked at me like there was something, you know, uh, that something that's hidden, that's pretty dangerous. And I knew that, and I would use that to navigate, uh, some of these spaces. Um, but yeah, uh, 10 years in, by that time I was, I'd already earned some, or I was on my way to earning some degrees. Um, I was known as like a kind of like a philosopher on the yard, a little bit smart guy, things like this, you know, um, but there was things missing. And so when I took success stories in 2015, um, They introduced that new, um, that new consideration, which was toxic masculinity and patriarchy, which I rejected wholeheartedly when I first heard it. Because I'm like, can you
0: you back up and just and just explain um, for anyone listening just what success stories is in general?
1: Okay, success stories um, at this time it was just a, a self help group in prison. It was an organized. Um, an organized self help group that was created by inmates, uh, incarcerated people, to, and we it had its own mission. Its mission at that time was to get young men between the ages of 18, 30 and 35 to love themselves. That was literally the mission at that time, um, which was, in, you got to understand, in a prison setting, that's like it seems very corny you're first hearing, you're like, "What? The- sure. we're going to take this class to, to love ourselves. Now, that's not how I can't. I didn't look at the board and say, because they have boards where you can sign up for these particular groups.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't look on the board and sign up for success stories because I wanted to learn how to love myself. That was an internal mission that they had. What they projected was. And this is literally the story that I was given. Imagine going to the ATM and you withdraw your money. And then on the receipt, it says an available balance of over a million dollars. Who doesn't want that? I was like, dude. Yes, I'm studying finance. Of course, that's exactly what I want, you know? Um, and they said, well, come on in the success stories. We have these conversations. I was like, cool. At that time, it was a 20-week group. We met once a week for 20 weeks. The first 10 weeks were about self-awareness. <laughs> and in the next 10 weeks, they're going to bring in professionals to teach you about stocks, investments, um, entrepreneurship, and all these things. And so I was looking forward to the second 10 weeks. I'm like, okay, let's just get yeah. through this self-awareness crap.
2: Yeah. And then
1: we're good. Um <laughs> Day, day one, they introduced, you've seen it in the documentary. Day yeah. one, they introduced, like, let's get specific about what's important to us. And I had never done that before. Never. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, okay, I had a really hard time. Name name five people that are important to me. What the heck? My mom. And it, like, ended there, you know? And then it kind of made me sad. I'm like, ah, man, there's like, I've been, you know, abandoned by so many people. It was like a, just a dark time. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. name some goals and things you want to do before you die anyway. That was a difficult exercise. But from that first day, I realized, okay, this is going to be challenging um, and it's going to be different. And what's funny is because I made myself into the character in prison, so to speak, that I, I was smart and I had my stuff together, that I couldn't just bail out of this challenge. I had to accept it. And so it was through those, through each week in the beginning that I realized, oh my goodness, the success they're talking about is a level of responsibility and self-awareness that will enable you to navigate to determine specifically what your values are and to respond to your circumstances with intention knowing what's important to you and calibrating everything to line up with that that was success but you would have never got me to take a group if I was presenting it that way
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: so um you know they they tricked me in the best possible way by the time of the end of the 10 weeks I wasn't even tripping off the stocks and bonds I was like dude um it was heavy now mind you the first time i went through the toxic masculinity conversation it wasn't hitting home it was uh at that time we were presenting it a lot differently uh we had had women coming in to present it you know so sorry
0: (laughs) no i just wanted to interject and you know i think that the the phrase toxic masculinity is so off-putting to a lot of people same as the term feminism same as the term patriarchy um, yes, I notice that in my conversations uh, with with women. I notice it with men, and I can only imagine in a prison setting just the reaction to uh, that verbiage. I'm wondering, first of all, if you can just you know help clarify what those terms mean to you and um, yes. and yeah, how you do start to present this to people who are very, very resistant to those words themselves and then the ideas
1: yeah um I'll say it right now that the one difference with success stories that's unique is that we don't frame these conversations in these terms as something that um, you need to learn to be politically correct
2: mm-hmm. or you
1: need to learn to, to save women or protect you know um, people that don't that aren't heterosexual we don't phrase it that way so we, we create a receptivity to the definitions we have and we define toxic masculinity as this. We say that toxic masculinity, as we define it, is there's four avenues into manhood that that are the only ways that you could be a man. It's by by having one of these things down. And I already mentioned them to you. You know, basically the willingness to be violent, the objectification of women and all that encompasses, you know, the appearance of wealth and the pursuit of wealth by any means necessary. You know, that's that's very, very big. And then also the stoic, um, basically the the. To, to not show any types of emotions that are associated with weakness and to have that dogged individuality. Yeah, I can do this all by myself.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, um,
1: when we set the examples and we say like, look at the guys that before we lifted up, who did we praise on the yard? Like, who did we see as the most manly? And guarantee you, they fell in these four particular, you know, in these four particular realms. Like they were absolutely great at at least one of these. And that's just what it was. And then we ask, like, who are the guys that we consider to be weak? You know, they usually, it's because of their opposite of one of these. They're not willing to be mm-hmm. violent. That's so all they do is a bust. You know, and so when we introduce it that way, we introduce it as a way to say, look, toxic masculinity and feminism, it jumps around in its definitions. There's no hardcore definition. But We're not worried about what they're saying. They've introduced the concept in a way, and we want to see if it's in the way of what, where we're trying to go. The great thing about success stories is we we invite the guys, we say, look, this is about your definition of success and what you want for yourself. Once mm-hmm. you name that, we're just going to have a conversation about what might be getting in the way of that. Mm-hmm. And through our experience, we realize that it's our ideas of masculinity, how we relate to it, obtain it, preserve it. Those are usually the greatest obstacles to what we think are important in our lives. When we frame it like that, um, people become more receptive. They're willing to at least have a conversation. And that's all we really want. You know, patriarchy, we say that, tosca masculinity is an individual thing like how I'm pursuing and maintaining my manhood you know I might not have all the women but if I could knock a dude out then I'm still mm. in the club you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying if I can't mm-hmm. fight and I don't have a lot of women but I'm paid you see my mm-hmm. rims I look like I got money then I'm still in the club you know mm-hmm. um, if, if I'm holding back my tears and I'm looking like I'm hard and things don't really phase me then cool you know then he, he's still in the club like mm-hmm. these are it's a personal thing. Patriarchy is when society at large buys in to those same definitions of manhood. So now my mom, my aunt, um, grandpa, they're all expecting these same, these same types. Of, we all believe that manhood mm-hmm. is encompassing these four things. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes toxic because those four things are, are harmful. They're destructive to spaces. They're destructive to individuals. Only mm-hmm. very few privileged people could actually stay alive or not incarcerated by mm-hmm. living a type of you know, lifestyle. So, yeah. and it encompasses like with transformative justice, it, it really lines up with all the other work that we're doing because we realize that um, like bell hooks said, buying it for, for, I don't want to say minority, but for people of color, especially in this time, well not even especially in this time, throughout, throughout our history in this country, this um, buying into that type of masculinity makes it very, very easy for people to in turn dominate us and lock us away and hurt us, kill us, and for us to kill it. It's very damaging for our community, in particular, to buy into that.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and so we have to, if we really care about what's happening with people of color, then we have to consider these ideas of manhood that are completely uh, corrosive to our communities.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, you have to at least consider it.
0: So y- you mentioned a little bit about your initial pushback but what other kinds of pushback do you see from um from people in the program
1: oh well yeah i mean because because we look at you know masculinity being attached to power being expressed in force most men feel like dude if i don't teach my son how to perform in this type of way he's going to get taken advantage of he's going to be hurt We see that the only (laughs) we're so limited in the way that we see power. That I'm basically Mm -hmm. telling my son to be powerless in this world. If I don't teach him how to how to fight and how to you know you know manipulate women and things, you know, or how to get money by any means necessary, like Mm -hmm. um, that's the most pushback we get. It's like guys are like, they're like, oh, I see the value in this, you know, but like my son's gonna get bullied, my son's gonna get taken advantage. We just cannot see other forms of power, and so um, that's usually a pretty tricky conversation because it's it's very heartfelt people really care about their kids um and things like that but it's funny when we mention daughters it shifts up you know because the people out there that think that it might not be an issue um because it's not a political issue it's, you might look for statistics or um like prove to me that this is like really a problem look around mm-hmm. like if you have a son you're you I'm pretty sure at some point you're going to be worried about what kind of man he's going to be. How is he going to utilize the power and privilege that he has in his life? How is he going to treat, you know, women? How is he going to, is he going to be bullied? Is he going to be able to fight? Like these concerns pop up for every single parent of a young boy popping up. And then for daughters, what are you thinking? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, 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 what are men going to do to her? Like these fears let you know that the environment <laughs> that we're yeah. sending our children into is, has some issues. And so, if you need a statistic to see that how men are defining themselves as men could show up very damaging for themselves and the people around them, if you need a statistic for that, you're blind. Um,
0: yeah, I think it's really overwhelming for people to even consider an alternative. So they're like, we just have to prepare our prepare our kids right. for what it is um, because they yes. can't even see what, what a different idea of manhood might be. And I can imagine yes. the fear Uh, that comes up for men in these programs it's such a raw thing if I don't have all these things that my whole life I've been affirmed for who am I how am I valuable what do I offer the world Um, how do I receive love period so um, can you tell us how you move people through that you know I imagine there's some (laughs) kind of for, for people that you know that that the program resonates with that there is some kind of light bulb moment maybe Maybe that happened for you, or maybe that was a longer process. Um, yeah. But how you start to um, how you start to redefine that for yourself?
1: Yeah, it's the greatest thing about success stories for me personally is creating the space for those voices. Like we, our space is completely informed by feminist by feminist thought because a lot of people have have gone into that space and articulated some of the things that I was in denial about. So just being creating the receptivity you know, mm-hmm. creating the space to even say, hey, most guys never even considered the idea that their manhood might be a problem between you know getting them in trouble. Mm-hmm. Like, these things I want in life, like what is going on? It's, it's how we define our man. Like we have not considered that. And like I said, once you begin to consider or consume something, you will begin to consider it anew. And so the conversations we have create dissonance. Mm-hmm. You have to justify certain things. It creates arguments, it creates a wrestling, it creates a searching for like is that true even to defend what you're saying you have to have some type of logical rationality sure. and that to me that opens the door it really really does now the guys that we're speaking with um the guys that are our coaches as well like we've traveled that yellow brick road of toxic masculinity to its conclusion mm-hmm. like in the worst possible ways and so we kind of have like a real credibility to call people on their stuff and like let it. Well, I mean, we're calling ours. We're growing in this conversation too, but at least we can throw it out there. Like, dude, um, honestly, I've been afraid. Honestly, I was scared. Honestly, you know, um, you know, things have happened to me. There's, there's, I'm not showing up the same in different spaces. You know, mm-hmm. and we're talking about that. We're talking about what integrity really is. You know, mm-hmm. when you're, you're acting. Super hard, like things don't phase you over here, but when you get into this other space, you're, you're you're breaking down. Like, why do you feel the need to deny those 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 inner truths that you know you're experiencing in order to please these other groups of people?
2: Mm-hmm. Like, what is
1: that about? And is there cowardice involved in that? Mm-hmm. And there is. You know, mm-hmm. it's a let's well let's talk about what what we're we afraid of. I'm afraid I'll get thrown away. I'm afraid I won't have power. I'm afraid I won't be accepted if I say these things. But yet here we are. all talking about them, Mm -hmm. all of us. Um, And so that's the space that we try to really create is to like, to model like, you know, the vulnerability to show Mm -hmm. that, you know, I could be a man and these other things. Like there's no limited man box and trying to stuff myself into it is causing catastrophic damage to my life and and my goals. Like it's really, our conversation at the beginning is very selfish. Mm -hmm. It's very, very selfish, you know, Um, it's not, is this working for you? If you say all these things are important, you know, do you understand that if somebody was to call you out of your name or challenge your manhood in some type of way, you would feel the need to, to recoup what was taken from you. And what could that do? You know, is your relationship with your girlfriend or your significant other or women in general or whoever you care about in general, how is that working? How is that going? How are you able to maintain juggle all these these performances is it working for you and most of the time no it's mm-hmm. not you know we bail out and try to start anew we bail out and try to start anew no it's her fault it's her fault and so our course like we go through all these steps it's not just the toxic masculinity although that's what makes us unique but we talk about identifying what's what's important to you we talk about um time management we go into your beliefs and emotions and what that process is we're not just acting. You know, there's a a thought happening before the action. And where does that Mm -hmm. thought come from? Mm -hmm. You know, Um, we analyze all these things so that by the end of the class, you're aware of processes that you weren't aware of before that have to do with you. Mm -hmm. And now you have to sit there. You have to sit there and say, dang it, this dude did something that made me angry. And I know that it's not him. It's a story I'm telling me inside of my mind. Mm -hmm. This is based on my beliefs. And what are those beliefs? And now the beliefs come barreling in front of your face where you're like, I believe that, um, that he doesn't see me as a strong forceful force and he's disrespecting me. And I feel and believe that the only way to respond to that level of disrespect is through application of force. Mm-hmm. That's not really a pr- that's not really a pretty picture to paint. Mm-hmm. And so by giving or creating an opportunity for that, t- that level of clarity, you know, it, to me, it gives people a choice. Yeah. Before we're kind of like slaves to toxic masculinity. And now you have a choice. Like, are you going to be toxic in this moment? Or are you gonna say, you know what, dude, you can't, I define manhood. It's yeah. not something that I'm tentatively holding onto that I could just drop at any second and then have to go fumble and pick it up through some terrible act. That's right? not the reality, you know? It's, and then I, a, I, I-
0: such a power shift, you know, that that's not something that can Big be taken. Time. That's that's yours yes. to own and yeah. make those decisions yeah. in, in every and also, like, small and, like and large de- moment.
1: Exactly. Exactly, and, and and that's empowering to, to know that you know, mm-hmm. especially when you got a bunch of guys around you that are saying like, "Hey, bro, yeah, we all believe the same thing." That's why it's such a sacred space,
2: mm-hmm.
1: is that you got you got dudes that know what it feels like. We got I got an A plus in toxic masculinity, an A plus. I got a degree in there, a PhD in toxic. Masculinity. Yeah. So if I'm telling you it's good, then it's good. Like, bro, right. we don't have to be like this no more. I've literally analyzed it, and we're coming to the. To, it's just two pretty much frequencies of. Power before for me was about destruction or my ability to destroy things or to threaten to destroy things. Like all my power came from that. I step into a room, people fear me or they, they recognize that I'm a force, that I can move money or I can move something. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. With force though, I could destroy things. I and mean, I could fight things and break things. But, um, and it felt powerful. It's short-term power, you know? When mm-hmm. I feel oppressed by the police, I go, I don't go punch a brick wall. I go break a glass bottle because I know mm-hmm. it's going to break before me. And if it makes me I'm powerful for this moment.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: there's another kind of power. That was the only power that was introduced to us. Warfare. Go mm-hmm. kill your problems. Destroy, destroy, destroy. Mm-hmm. But that's such an individualism that's not tribal. Um, mm-hmm. I believe in a world tribe. And there's another power that has to do with construction rather than destructive. destruction. Mm-hmm. The power to build, the power to heal, the power to produce things. So it's easy to burn down a house, but to build a house is a significant, significantly more challenging proposition. Mm-hmm. And, so, but it's just as powerful, like or more, it's more, more.
0: Powerful. yeah.
1: So I invite me yeah. into that, create spaces.
0: I mean, that's what's so frustrating is like, it take, it's the ultimate strength to walk yourself through that thought process, break down your own behaviors, your own conditioning, your own insecurities. And then react in this way that you know is traditionally what a lot of men would call weak. How sure. do we how do we rebrand? How do we even just bring attention to to those moments when men are are making those choices? You know, it, it's so much more subtle. It's like you can't. It's hard to celebrate the the lack of something, right? When you don't see violence, but it seems like that's what where I'm getting at is how do you model that and what does that look like in you know, in, in these micro and macro moments, like, how are you disrupting that, uh, with men around you?
1: Well, I mean, our coaches are literally going into prisons and spaces and like having the conversation for one, like giving it a vocabulary and, um, having the strength to be honest is, is the beginning. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: calling things what they are, like br- analyzing things differently, calling them what they are, you know, um, for instance, um, in a group, we mentioned that um, that anger is a secondary emotion. So chances are, if you're angry, you're covering up hurt or fear, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. Just that consideration. So now, and hey, give me a time when you're angry like this past week. Oh, man, something happened, this and that, you know. OK, cool. Well, let's break that down a little bit. You know, if you can come with me and, and, and assume that anger is a secondary emotion, what emotion do you think was was behind your anger? Mm-hmm. And it always when people get to thinking they they will find it every time I've been doing transformational, transformational coaching for six years, it's inevitable they the process. It and they'll think, you know what? Well, it it pissed me off. Well, why why did it piss you off? Well, to maybe me think that you know she didn't value me. It made me think that she thought I was dumb, and that hurt you, didn't it? Oh well, I ain't gonna say. I mean, it, you know. okay, did it offend you? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you see what I'm saying? Like. Just, we just walk through the self-analyzation of, of why we do what we do. But a lot of it is modeling. A lot, just like anything, mm-hmm. I believe in the tipping point of culture. As people in power in these places that are, have these platforms, as they begin to speak this articulation, as they stop rewarding mm-hmm. one form of power and start rewarding and acknowledging another form and mm-hmm. giving it the same type of kudos, um, we create, like I told you in that cycle, you, that shame, a little bit of shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. A little bit of you know what I thought that people were going to see me a certain way if I did this behavior and dude we don't we're letting you know that like that ain't cool that's not how we build our tribe up we change our language up it's all the forms of culture have to have to shift in that type of way you yeah know, to where, like
0: it's on and, and and it's happening it's on everyone you know obviously for our program we landed on our, our partnership together we landed on um, you know creating places for men to feel. And that's, that's something we all have to create. That's women, you know, sitting here allowing space for men to be afraid for men to be sad, for men to have um, feelings of insecurity and inferiority and holding that. And um,
1: It's a full spectrum. I've heard the arguments before. Like people will say like, you know, uh, you know, um, there's, there's, this is not the time to cry. Like in this moment, we got to go and do some heavy, crazy military type, Stuff that's not even, this is a hypothetical that's always Mm -hmm. thrown out. Um, And it's just not the time to cry. I'm not saying that you can't handle what you need to handle. I'm saying that acceptance, and this is why we use that word love in the beginning of the old success stories. Now our mission has changed. Of course, it's broadened out. But accepting yourself and accepting the people around you is accepting the full spectrum of their humanity. Mm -hmm. Asking them to hide pieces of themselves in order for you to find them acceptable is damaging to to them and to the whole entire um, the, the world tribe. So I could feel and recognize how I feel, and this is where it's liberating for me. And I could choose how to express those types of emotions, but I acknowledge them in myself. I'm not choking them back out of fear that somebody's not going to approve of me expressing this emotion. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's happening within me. And there's a courage in that to say that, you know what? Right now I'm like hurt and I'm hurting pretty, pretty bad. And I know why I'm hurting and I'm all right with that. Like, mm-hmm. and if you don't accept me for that, screw it. Like mm-hmm. being able to risk that acceptance is really what we're trying to create a space for. Because when people step into that, we realize that actually you're not risking, you're gaining. You're gaining, uh, you're creating an opportunity for others to also step into that courage because I fundamentally believe that we're all human. Um, I I fundamentally believe that we all have empathy. Um, Very few people lack empathy um, on a psychopathic basis. And um, if you have empathy, then you're you're feeling, you've just trained yourself not to feel and things like that. And as somebody that's walked that path, um, I have full credibility to speak on um, that process because I did it. Uh, I numbed myself to people, I numb myself to my particular pains, so that I could try to follow these paths to straight-up destruction. And um, mm-hmm. it's just not a worthwhile endeavor. And since I, if I, <laughs> I have nothing to lose by trying this, mm-hmm. nothing to lose by trying this. And I've, as, as I experiment with it, I gain more and more and more. Um,
0: and so you've you've been out now four months. This week yes. is that right?
1: This week, yep, the seventh. I got out May seventh serving 15 years and two months in prison. Mind you, I thought I was never getting out. After I did that 10 wow. years, they changed the law that said that because of my aid at the time of the crime, um, I was gonna have a chance to go before the parole board, which was exciting. And I went before the parole board in January. They found me suitable for release and I was released in May. Um, and yep, Congratulations. Success created. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. I was and so excited about it.
0: Are you working full-time with Success Stories right now? Or?
1: Yes, full-time okay. I'm a transformational coach and a growth coordinator uh, on the team.
0: And what would you say integrity or wholeness looks like or feels like for you at this, at this time?
1: Mm. Um, integrity looks like me standing, and setting boundaries and determining who I'm gonna be in these spaces holding myself accountable for the words that I say, holding myself accountable for the actions that I take in response to anything. Um, it's up to me to not only reach my goals, but it's up to me to, to choose who I'm going, to be who I'm gonna be. Nobody can make me into anybody but me. And so um, integrity looks like me maintaining that, that, that balance between who I say I am and who I believe I am and how I'm showing up, listening to feedback from the people around me, um, and then lining it up, holding myself accountable. So when I, you know, when I err, I feel it. Mm-hmm. And I don't run from it. And I, I tell myself, dude you effed up right there, and that was not you. And you need to either, you know, you need to admit that to yourself, and then you need to to do whatever's necessary to line that up. Um, mm-hmm. you know, some people say the word fix it or whatever the case may be, but I need to take accountability of my actions, you know. So that's what that looks like for me on a day to day.
0: And that's, I imagine for all of us doing any kind of inner work, you know, it's a forever process. It's not a place that we arrive at. It's again, it's these choices in every moment. There's yes. circumstances and relationships that are gonna challenge it all the time. And it's yes. making those making those choices uh, every day.
1: Yep, yep. And learning, learning to develop the vocabulary to speak what's going on inside of me um to not imagine that somebody's reading my mind it enables mm-hmm. me to have better relationships um to be okay with people's disapproval all that type of, all that all of that matters you know and then to recognize that that's just the beginning you know um i feel like i have uh, a value in the community uh, i told you we have a belief transformative justice and so i have a have a value where I could speak to these things and hopefully create a culture that grows and grows and grows which what we're doing, uh, to where it's just creating a more healing, more accepting environment that's based off equality, uh, starting there. This person that's over here picking up trash and doing despicable things has as much value as I do. They're just not showing up to their full potential, and I want to know why. I'm not going to degrade them into some object, some thing that could be disposed of. Uh, would rather figure out why they're responding to the reality the way they are and then create spaces for them to heal and become you know something that could also heal others and that's that's the work that we do on a day but that's, that's what i'm committed to doing.
0: that's you know? beautiful <laughs> i'm curious uh what you would say um you know i think a lot of people who haven't been personally impacted by incarceration um, there's a lot of misconceptions i think that you know there's a lot of people who want to believe that our justice system is just that things work because the um the understanding that it doesn't and that there's a lot of you know that we're throwing away a lot of humans <laughs> and yes. it's heartbreaking it's overwhelming if people understand um the reality of that so i think there's this tendency yes. that i've observed where people want to know what people did and to know that they, you know, I'm using air quotes, deserve it, it, or they're going to pass some kind of moral judgment, um, because that's everyone's, um, everyone's own cognitive dissonance, right? Like if otherwise it's hard to grapple with the idea of people sitting there for decades and decades, right? So I see this happening and, um, I'm wondering just what you might want how that feels when people do that, when people want to know what you did, whether you deserve it and what you would want people to know or how you might want them to, um, to think about that differently.
1: Um, it's a good question. Ah. One, it's like, it pulls me into all these other beliefs that I have is there's the illusion that we're, that we're separate from things, you know, um, So you can't make a human into a monster, no matter how monstrous the acts of that person, you just can't. People are mostly the same. Um, They behave differently for reasons. They have different values or different pressures placed upon them. I would say this to these particular communities too, that there are needs that happen when a crime takes place, especially a violent one. You witness a violent crime, you're pissed off. You're angry because you're hurt, really. This person that was hurt, it hurts you because of our empathy. And then that, that hurt is covered with anger. Justice has to be done. That bastard, I gotta degrade him into something that I could feel mm-hmm. powerful over.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, mm-hmm. And then there's fear that, I don't want that to happen to me. We've been spending so much time, I mean, Hundreds of years, satisfying those emotions and creating these humongous apparatuses to satisfy those emotions instead of recognizing that there's other needs that are displayed in that instant before the activity takes place. And if we could create a space to where people could express and identify the needs that are within themselves, and if the community could move to recognize and fit in ways that not necessarily address every single need, but consider these things in our solutions, Mm -hmm. then we would be at a different place. Mm -hmm. Serving fear and anger leads to catastrophic. It doesn't lead to public safety. It doesn't lead to anything that we think we're getting to. Mm -hmm. And what's sad is the very community that provides all the victims and the majority of the perpetrators, that community gets nothing from the justice system. Mm -hmm. You provide all this one community provides all the lawyer fees for the defense, all of the taxes for police, crime scene cleanup, funeral costs, all of these things associated with crime, and then gets nothing for this apparatus, this criminal justice system we have now. What who wins from this system is of course politicians always make use of it. The media makes shows, you know, whatever shows, crime shows, crime, they get content for the news and things like that, they're winning. Companies that sell toilet paper to prisons and things like that, $23 million contracts to serve food and soy-based meat products, they win. Um, And they win big at such a heavy expense, blood and bone out of the same community. Your son grows up to be the victim of my son and and vice versa. And we're paying this and not getting nothing. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not getting media content. I'm not getting a $25 million contract. And so it behooves us to think that if our goal is public safety, if our goal is um, for people not to feel that that is the way to satisfy their needs by acting out destructively, Mm -hmm. then let's apply some energy into another mechanism that might actually provide benefit to these people. So um, objectification of people is just a false calculus. Mm-hmm. You cannot turn a subject into an object, no matter how vivid mm-hmm. your imagination, without significant consequence. Mm-hmm.
0: And you just, just cannot.
1: Re- yeah.
0: Reducing somebody, anybody to any moment and um, isolating them from the entirety of the social and contextual factors that get anyone anywhere in life. Um, yeah, I guess. You know I, I struggle with that with with people around me and, and and it is a really sensitive conversation and I think that you know a lot of people who have um, who have been on the receiving end of some of that harm it's it's not necessarily their work to do or you know empathy to have but obviously right. the model right now um, isn't isn't serving anyone and no I am so. <laughs> from there, my question to you, another, another challenging and controversial one is, um, you know, just, do you think that everyone is capable of, uh, rehabilitation in some way? Um, what, you know, and I'm saying that I'm using rehabilitation really broadly here, um, healing, I guess, do you think that, um, everyone is capable of that? And, you know, this is for people who, um, think that, the idea of abolition is, you know, some utopian fantasy, right? Um, yeah. I'm curious, just your your feedback on that.
1: Well, I know the history of prisons. I know like, you know, so I'm just considering different things that most people aren't reading those types of books. You know, I read Plutarch's Lives. Um, what's funny is there's a Roman general, do you know a Roman general named Pompey? You heard that word Pompey?
2: Mm-hmm. He was like
1: a contemporary of Julius Caesar. And you know, we lift up Rome as like this, this, uh, civilized, uh though violent but powerful civilization.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: it's I mean it's true to a certain very certain extent it is true. Uh, Pompey was a general that had they had a pirate problem in the Mediterranean. Uh, there were so many pirates and these are like basically gangs, a, a gang of them. <laughs> there are so many that food wasn't coming into the, the city of Rome. And so they basically gave Pompey all this military power to go solve the problem. And he was like a renowned general What he said to himself, and people could look it up in Plutarch's Lives, in his volume two, he said to himself after he rounded up all these pirates that had been killing people and doing all these things. He said that people are not born this way. They make themselves wet this way through habit and practice. And he says just like an animal can be domesticated, a person, given different circumstances, different, you know, motives and things like that, can. Change completely. So, for somebody to be living in such a violent culture that praised high levels of domination and violence, they could have gave these people over to the to the uh, to be gladiators or something for entertainment. He took these pirates and placed them in territories that needed to be redeveloped, and told the territories and said, "Look, I'm gonna give you in exchange for money to redevelop your spaces. I'm gonna ask you to take some of these men, take them from the sea and put them on the land." to till the land and have land and and produce and do all these types of things. That was his response to vicious pirates taking over the seas. That always shook me when I read it. I said, what in the heck? He knew fundamentally that a person makes themselves this way. And I hold that that to be obvious as well. If I went to a room at a hospital and I looked at all the babies there, I would not be able to predict which baby is going to grow up and hurt somebody. we have to factor in both things. We do that in success stories. There's environmental invitation to do things, pressures, values that are you know, confirmed. And then there is individual will to respond to that. Um, we talk about both uh, because it is both. It's epigenetic. It's, um, we have a responsibility to recognize the signs we're giving the people with which they can feel value. We
0: mm-hmm. are
1: contributing to that as a whole the person Mm -hmm. is responsible for the choices that they make but we have to consider much more than the individual when a 15 year old like my friend is able to get a gun and kill somebody one must ask how did he learn that that was the response to being angered by somebody Mm -hmm. how did he get who enabled him to get pumped up to that particular solution Mm -hmm. Who provided him with the, like, all that has to be considered. But when he went to court, it all disappeared, and it was just, he's just an evil teenager. That's just not real. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes, I do believe that people could transform because I'm sitting here. My transformation is significantly deep. It did not, I was not born a person that robbed. I was not born to do any of these things. If anything, I just transformed back to the kid I once was before the trauma before the healing, I mean, I mean, before the, the the harm, I'm convinced that when you take away trauma and fear, people are mostly pro-social.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the, we have to say like, how much are we investing into getting rid of trauma? Yeah, you
0: know? I agree with you hundred you know. percent. I, I think that people um, seem to think it's like mutually exclusive to have, you know, empathy and compassion for, but also um, have accountability for people who've caused harm. You know, I think that there's this idea that if you have empathy and understanding that um, that maybe you're condoning it or saying that, you know, certain harm or violence is okay. um, That's not what we're saying. We're just saying that the current approach is not the solution either. So we can understand it in its context. And, and look yes. at different solutions that are actually reducing harm for everybody involved. Well, I
1: believe we have a duty to do that. It's yeah. almost like toothbrushes are tearing people's gums up. Mm-hmm. We still want clean teeth, but can we have it without having our gums shattered? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's called innovation, secondary mm-hmm. innovation. We do it mm-hmm. everywhere. Mm-hmm. But this space is so complex because of the emotions, because of the real pain involved
2: yeah. Yeah. that,
1: um, it's difficult, especially when we have this individuality thing. I was hurt by this person, right. and I need this person to, I need to feel safe from this person, and I want this person to hurt as well. I mean, let's let's break it down to it. Mm-hmm. But if I considered more than myself, I would be much more concerned with, okay, I'm, I'm hurt, seriously, and and, 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 it, and it is a big deal. But how can I make sure this doesn't happen to other people? Because the system that I am, that's trying to satisfy this need, which isn't really good at that either. Victims are not taken care of in the system at all to Mm me. Um, This ain't doing that. This is not getting the goals that we want. And why aren't we rethinking it? We're not rethinking it because other people have significant interest in keeping it the same.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. My victims didn't get nothing. They didn't Mm -hmm. get crap. I'm sitting here trying to figure out strategies now, even though my parole says that I can't, I can't be near them or anything like that i'm trying to figure out ways that i could actually try to heal them or give them i owe them yeah you know um but the system the system didn't provide them with anything yeah, yeah. and then it does it doesn't want me to even try to provide. so what are you considering here like what is you know um i really believe that in our moment of time right now we have a situation where we need to consider two things one imagination real imagination um I'm not saying I'm talking about like (laughs) really conjuring up something new Um, and then a a reaction to our inheritance. This world that we've inherited is ours right now. It is ours. It is not somebody that's coming behind us and it doesn't belong to the people that came before us. It is ours right now. and We have to be responsible with it. We have to look at it and say, what do I want to do with this? What do I want to leave as a legacy? Because it's mine. It's not my grandfather's legacy anymore because now I'm contributing to it. It's mine. I've inherited, I've titled. If I could combine that title and that ownership with imagination, a recognition of what's important to us in this society, then we need to start considering new ways to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, success stories, we are seriously committed to that. We believe that our group is going to start to be to enter the prevention spaces. Like we go into high schools and things like that. Mm -hmm. We believe that teachers should be having these conversations. So this vocabulary is, is being brought to children at a younger age so that they could have the ability to speak their emotions, to understand where their values and beliefs are coming from and what's important to them. We Mm -hmm. believe that just with that consideration, just with that consideration, it slows down reactive responses. It gives people the ability to extract value out of experience. And so, um, we're moving into that space because we can believe that it will be preventative, which would render a lot of the systems we have obsolete. If we can do that, we want people, we want crime to be seen as a, a symptom of some type of sickness. Like what yeah. the heck is going on? Like we need to get curious about why somebody would even do that. And that's where the, that's where the, you know,
0: Louder. That's the work <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah sorry. Uh, no, I'm saying uh, it's, I want to scream it from the, from the rooftop. It's, yeah. just, um, it's the only thing I can tell you, I, you know, in my business and life, I talk with a lot of people and um, hear about a lot of, a lot of people's pain. And there's very few things that don't boil down to these concepts we're talking about. And, um, and this is the solution. That's why I have become so obsessed with success stories and uh, that's right. had to, had to come after you guys because um, you know, I care, <laughs> yeah. I care about victims. I care about harm that's been done but we have to go upstream we we have got to we have got yeah. to get ahead of it and and what that looks like is helping people find their full authentic yeah. selves and, yes. and and heal and not have to yeah. not have to go down these paths so i mean you're you're amazing you already know that but i'm going to tell you um you're very powerful you have so much power to change hearts and minds um mine absolutely and um, i'm really excited for for the work you're doing and going to continue to do. Um, as a as a final note here, for anyone listening who might want to start a conversation with a man in their life on this subject, um, I like to leave people with something really tangible. Um, you know, what are a couple things that you would suggest, um, just as people try to approach the subject of toxic masculinity with men in their lives, and then. Um, and then a couple of things for men maybe who want to address it within themselves.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, watching the documentaries is is, is simple because it's it's fairly entertaining. Um, it's it explains a lot. I would always start there. Um it, it is it is difficult to have the conversation with somebody that does not think that they have a problem, they're not being receptive, you know. But I will say this that if in any business, if you focus on the benefits of the person focus not on how this hurting me, what you're doing, even though it might be very true that they're hurting you. You focus on, is this working for you? Because you have power to make it work for you. And if holding on to these beliefs that you're probably not even aware of is constantly creating patterns in your life to where you're just not getting to what you want, um, then you might need to consider some new things. It's ultimately about you. I'm a person, this is not easy. Uh, people have been trying, I mean, feminists have been writing for years and it's mm-hmm. not able to cross that threshold. Um, and that's why we're trying to create these spaces for, for men to talk to men, you know, to have the, to have that initial conversation. But invite people to watch success stories, that, that video, um, if, they're, if they're receptive to a conversation about why, it's always about why do you do what you do? How it works for you. Is um, yelling and banging things and breaking things, is that working for you? <laughs> no. Um, if everybody being afraid of you, that is that what respect and power looks like? Is that working? I doubt it. Is it working to feel like um, all your value comes from money and performance, taking care of things around the house? Is that really working for you? It's not fundamentally. A lot of people are sad and not saying it. A lot of suicides are happening and people are shocked. Um, how could this millionaire commit suicide because that millionaire found out when he got to the top of that mountain of money that it didn't fulfill him the way he thought I had that exact experience. Um, so that's where I would start, you know, is this, what's, what's important to you and Mm -hmm. is what you're doing working out.
0: And for, for the men, you know, day one, week one, who had taken a hard look at these things within themselves? What are, what are a couple of things that helped you or that you'd suggest, whether it's books or organizations or just you know, how you started to change your thought processes in, in those moments?
1: I would say this, if you read something or hear something and it pisses you off significantly, I would explore why. I wouldn't look for a group of people that agree with you and they're pissed off as well. And you can just talk about how pissed off you are. I would try to really uncover why it is that you're pissed off, you know, and and, and try to get to something that like satisfies me. Because I know for myself, Bell Hooks, the first time I read The Will to Change, I was every page, I was like, who does this woman think she is? <laughs> um, seriously, I was like, With well, these claims, she hasn't been a man. How does she even know these things? Where's the scientific proof? I was like, livid. And uh, that was a weird response from me because I don't get pissed off at everything. And so when I really tried to get down to it, it was um, um, she might be right. If I'm a smart person, like most people believe they are, then you should be able to hear something that you totally disagree with, with equanimity. Mm -hmm. If you can't do that, it's because you feel that you've been attacked or hurt in some type of way. You've been made vulnerable. Somebody did some damage and it behooves to figure out what has been hurt. Cause there's some ego there, you know? Um, that's what I would, that's what I recommend. That's what really happened with me is mm-hmm. if this wasn't, if this was just some crazy woman saying stuff that didn't matter, then she has no power over my life. She's not dripping acid on my head. She just sure. wrote some words on a page. Sure. Why am I getting so pissed off? So I, I would, I would, I would start there. Explore, get curious. We have uh it is our duty. To explore all aspects of this life. Um, we should be able to hear a plethora of ideas because you never know. Um, if you think you know everything, you're kind of already halfway to some trouble. Yeah. You know? Definitely. Yes.
0: All right. So people should definitely check out successstoriesprogram.org. They should definitely check out The Feminist on Cell Block Y, a documentary by CNN that features the Success Stories programs in prisons.
2: Yes. Uh, yes. They should
0: definitely consider a donation to support the work you're doing.
1: For sure. For sure. For sure. Yes.
0: <laughs> Anything else you'd like to ask the people to do?
1: <laughs> um. Ah, stay in a growth mindset. Stay learning. Um, stay considerate. Have deep conversations with the people you love. Look for the greatest amount of connectivity. Um, Try, just experiment with seeing everybody as fundamentally worth the same amount. Consider that, that person that's over there talking to themselves with dirty feet at the bus stop. Just consider that they feel and dream just like you and wonder what it's like and how would they let themselves get to that position. Or maybe they like just get curious about their humanity and their path and i tell you it's challenging but at least we're actually looking at the reality that way um, i would recommend that if we get curious about each other we will uncover some things that will enable us to really maximize the worth of all the souls and minds on this planet which will render us in a better position as these years go by there's a little girl somewhere with the cure to all of these diseases that we're afraid of right now Well, because She's stuck in a situation that's not evoking that capability out of her or she's hurt or she's traumatized or nobody's being curious about her value. Um, We're not going to receive the benefits of that mind. Um, The reality is we're a world tribe. You cannot get enough money in the world to separate yourself from nature and other people. We are connected whether we like it or not. If you have a mansion on a hill and a bunch of money and people always try to please you when they're around you, you are still connected tornado could come through, (laughs) Uh, all kinds of things can still affect you. So like, please consider that chasing that uh, to the expense of so many people is just not wisdom. It is not wisdom. Um, We are connected and it's worth getting curious about each other, I would say that.
0: Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, Thank you for sharing (laughs) your story. Thank you for your vulnerability, for keeping it so honest and real. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, and um, how many people I think it will impact. So
1: hopefully, it does. You got it anytime, Ali. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thoughtful Human. If you'd like to follow along on our journey or check out our products, you can visit our website at thoughtfulhuman.co or find us on all socials at Thoughtful Human. And of course, if you found this episode useful in any way, we'd so appreciate a review to help us reach more people who might need it. And finally, if you or a loved one needs access to a month of free therapy, you can visit betterhelp.com thoughtfulhuman.